starting the timer. So, um, as Matt said, I'm going to share some pretty heavy stuff. I just want to kind of caveat it with, I've processed this stuff. So this isn't me sharing from a place of pain. I've been through years of therapy. If you don't do therapy, you should do therapy. Therapy is amazing. It's not a second-class healing. It is, it is amazing. It's important. Um, and I've had more prayer ministry um, than I've had hot dinners. No, maybe not. I don't know. Um, I tend to have a hot dinner at lunch, actually. So, yeah, anyway, just a side note. <laughs> So when I was born, um, we are going back to the beginning, I was born blue, had the cord wrapped around my neck. And um, when I was born, my dad was disappointed that I was a boy, didn't, didn't want a boy, wanted a girl. Now we already had my sister and he wanted another girl. Um, I found out that recently, um, it's going to make sense why in a little bit. I was born into a very broken household and my father um, Keith, I'll call him Keith from now on because I have a stepdad who I call dad so it gets a little bit confusing um, he was abusive on many levels he used to beat my mum once beat her so bad that she was hospitalised um, he once tried to make her take an overdose um, she was hospitalised taken to the psychiatric ward she told everyone that's what he did and they didn't believe her he would call up the hospital and say can I come and see my wife um, yes you can, can I speak to her, okay put her on the phone I'm coming to kill you, I'm coming right now to kill you then he would turn up in a suit and fly out with flowers and so deep, deep, I mean I'm just going to say like a lot, a lot today we talk about gaslighting and a lot of what we talk about as gaslighting isn't gaslighting it's, it's disagreement and there is gaslighting that goes on that's true gaslighting, like that's real, real gaslighting while well, my mum was pregnant with my older sister, Keith pushed her down the stairs. When uh, she was pregnant with me, he um, abused her, beat her. Um, my mum is actually my hero. Um, I once put that on a dating profile, twice, and my friend was like, maybe only mention your mum once. <laughs> and I was like, okay. When she was a child, she got home from school and she walked in to um, her kitchen and she found her mum had committed suicide. Her brother, my uncle, took her upstairs, said, just stay up there. It's okay, mum's still alive. Um, called the ambulance. She'd actually been dead for about four hours. Um, grand, granddad came home, took her next door, left her um, there for two days, cleared the house of everything that was in the house that was of her mum's, came back in, put her on, a, put her on his knee, and said, okay, you can cry. She cried. 30 seconds later, she said, that's it. Pull yourself together. And they never spoke about her mum again. She was seven years old. She is amazing to have gone through all that and then gone through with my father. When I was three months old, Keith put a pillow over my face until I stopped breathing. No apparent reason other than just to kill me. He then said to my mum, I, I, I did this. I've brought him back to life. Um, when I found out about this, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. He said, no, he didn't. I did. <laughs> when I was nine months old, uh, it came out that Keith had been um, sexually abusing my older sister, Kerry, and he'd been doing it as part of a ritualistic coven. So he was into witchcraft. What she remembers is a church-like building. She remembers an altar. She remembers the use of blood. And then she said to mum once, Daddy stands in a circle with his friends and talks to Satan. He left um, to be with a woman that he'd been having an affair with when the abuse came out. 
and um, not once tried to reconnect with me until 2010 when he was terminally ill and I found out six months too late. Quick side note on that one. Um, about two weeks before, I went to a conference and um, I, it was one of these churches that doesn't have any facilities at all. It was a bit, I guess a bit like this, like no showers. I mean, not that churches have showers, but... <laughs> London. Um, I was in, a, uh, we went and um, played football and um, came back and obviously muddy and sweaty. And I just said to the guy that was organising the conference, I was like, mate, I can't do two days without a shower. Is there a shower somewhere? Please help me. Um, he said, yeah, if you go out the back door, go across the road, knock on the door and just say, you know, I've sent you. So I went over and the guy opened the door. He's like, yeah, for a shower. And I was like, is it obvious? Like, up you go. Cool. Cheers. Had a shower. Came back downstairs. He said to me, I'm about to go off to Bethel. This was like 15 years ago. 10 years ago. So I'm about to go off to Bethel. Um, do you know what that is? And I was like, I think it's a cult, but go on. He said to me, I don't anymore, just for the record. Um, he said to me, I feel like God speaks to me and I feel like I need to cut off the line of cancer in your family. And I was like, well, nobody died of cancer, but go for it. Two weeks later, I found out my dad died of cancer. Isn't that kind of God? So I come from a line of pretty horrific men, being totally honest. Like, I, I, don't, I don't come from a good line, a good family line. So I really relate with that word, you know. That's not your family line anymore. My mum got released. Um, my mum had a nervous breakdown on finding out about the abuse. Goes into, a, um, into a, a psychiatric ward again. We go into foster care where they feed us dog biscuits and mistreat us. When my mum was released from hospital, we moved to London. Uh, life didn't get much easier, it got worse. My sister went into care because of her brokenness and she stayed there until she was 18. So I just, I grew up saying to people, I'm an only child, like I'm, I don't have a sister. Do you have any siblings? No, no, I'm an only, I'm an only child. Um, we had people coming in and out of our lives. One such person was Uncle John. Uh, he was supposed to be this uh, father figure, but one occasion um, to teach me a lesson as a six-year-old, he locked me in a room with a snake and said, you're not allowed out until you've picked up all of its feces, just because I was annoying him. A, a python. Imagine being six years old and, and being locked in a room with a python. Let's just say I don't like snakes. He once believed I'd lied to him about something. So we were playing in the garden and um, me and my mum lived with this other family. It was a mum and two kids and Hannah, the daughter, was my age. And um, we were playing in the garden. We were playing golf, as you do, with a putter, you know, what you see on TV, going towards the road, swinging, whacking it with a putter. And we kept on missing. And then um, everyone had had a turn. It was my turn. And I was like, okay, it's my go. And Hannah was like, no, it's my go. And I was like, no, it's definitely my go. Stand back. She didn't move back. I whacked her on the head. She goes off to the hospital with a cracked head. I plead my innocence because I didn't do it on purpose. I didn't. Get sent to bed without dinner, which is horrific. Next day, I wake up, and Pete um, and, the, and everyone else is outside. It's a really hot day. Um, around lunchtime, they decide to do a, a barbecue and a water fight, and he comes up to my room, and he says, now, I want you to tell me the truth, which is one of the most damaging things you can say to a kid that's already told you the truth, right? I want you to tell me the truth. Did you do it on purpose? No, I didn't. I didn't do it on purpose. Okay, that's fine. I believe you. Come outside. We're having a water fight and a barbecue. Great, cool. 
go outside. Gets me to lay down in front of a wheelbarrow full of water. Pours the entire thing over my face. Hands the hose to Hannah and says, that's your punishment. Now get back up to your room and never lie to me again. The feeling of injustice walking back up to the room is something that I still feel today when injustice happens. It's that same almost chemical reaction in me that's like, that's not right. That's not what it's meant to be like. Uh, key, uh, uh, John once put me in a, um, in a bathtub of water that was fully hot, like no cold water in it. And I got in and I remember standing in and this, this feeling of shivers going up my spine and, and being like, oh, that's so hot and him forcing me to sit down. And then I even remember like the water from the um, quality street tin that he used to wash my hair running down my back and thinking, gosh, I look like a lobster. And him making a joke about how I look like a lobster. It wasn't until years later in therapy that my therapist stopped me and said, do you know that's child abuse? James, if I was still in the NHS, I'd have to report that. I was like, really? That's not how you're meant to be treated? That's not how you're meant to be looked after as a six, seven-year-old? My my mum met my stepdad, Mike, and um, things got a bit easier, but they didn't go great. I went through my teens fearing death, Every ache, every pain, everything was like cancer or something wrong with me. I was going to die. I had severe OCD, light switches, like I'd worry if I was going to turn it off properly. If it didn't turn it off properly, was there going to be a fire? Would the, would the place burn down? Would I lose my mum? I'd wash my hands like thoroughly, which has set me up perfectly for a pandemic. Um, when I was using the toilet, I'd, I'd worry that I was going to get some kind of bug. So I'd actually sit on the toilet with my t-shirt like this. Again, setting me up quite nicely for a pandemic, but not, not really what you want to live your life like as an 11-year-old. I was petrified my mum would die. She was my only kind of hope in life. And so I was so petrified that they would go out, I'd be at home, and I'd just stand by the window the entire time they were out waiting for the car to come back in. And then I'd run to the chair and I'd sit down, pretend that I hadn't been standing by the the window shaking, thinking they're not going to come back. I'm going to lose my mum as well. I'd be standing there busting for the loo, but I'd worry that I'd miss something and wouldn't see them. One night as an 11-year-old, like I woke up um, in the middle of the night with a hand around my neck. I remember physically feeling it and opening my eyes, there was nobody there. Something was trying to take me out. My entire life up until that point, something had been trying to take me out. My teens weren't much better. I was bullied all the way through school. I had a best friend outside of school who, as we approached the school gates, he would go into school and then bully me in school. I had a friendship group once I got to sort of maybe 17, 18 who were my best friends and I was always a bit of an outsider there like I never really found the jokes that funny I'd always challenge them like I kind of was quite religious and so they kind of kept me at arm's length and once went round to the house we'd watch the OC every Tuesday and I went round to the house I knocked on the door and uh, this guy's mum opens the door and there was maybe like 12 of us in this friendship group and she goes what are you doing here it's like oh I'm here for the OC it's like what do you mean 
It's like, are the guys not here? It's like, no. Why aren't you with them? It's like, where are they? They've all gone away on holiday. Why aren't you with them? When I, when I questioned it, and I said, you know, thinking, you know, I'm just an annoying person. It's like, oh, sorry, we only had space for 12 people. There wasn't enough space for you. Okay. I had a best mate who just one day came around to my house, knocked on the door, literally my closest friend, and he said, James, I don't want to be your friend anymore. And I said, why? He said, I don't know, I just don't like you. It's like, okay. I remember sitting down on the chair in floods of tears, just being like, I don't understand. What have I done? Three months later, he comes around. He says, can I see you? Yeah, sure, comes around. He said, James, I don't know why I said that. I literally have no idea why I said that. You're my best friend. You're like a brother to me. Of course, what did I do? Yeah, best friends. Of course, I'm going to accept him. Went through some pretty horrific relationships had one girl um, break up with me saying she didn't find me spiritually, emotionally, or physically attractive. It's not how to break up with people, just FYI. Found out that Keith died, and that spent, sent me down into a spiral. If, that, you know, if all the other stuff wasn't enough, that sent me down into depression, and I'd end up crying myself to sleep on multiple occasions. I mean, I don't know if you've ever done that, but you, you literally fall asleep crying and then you wake up in the morning and you're like, ah, oh, it's horrific. I've been rejected more times than you would believe. I've been cheated on, I've been suicidal, I've been clinically depressed. I lost a friend to suicide. And I never ever wanna hear on the phone again, James, I've got something to tell you, I don't know how to tell you this, Joel's dead. What, what, what do you mean Joel's dead? He's taken his life. Why? Nobody knows. He's just done it. Been hurt by the church many, many times. When Keith died, I felt so guilty that I was sad that he died. And I cried so much. And I was with a girl at the time. And she was amazing. And I just suddenly burst into tears. And I told my pastor at the time, I just keep on crying. He's like, how are you doing, James? And I just keep on crying. He's like, huh, good job she doesn't mind a crybaby then, isn't it? So I just pushed it all down, all down. All my experience taught me was, James, you are worth nothing. So I'd regularly look in the mirror and I'd look myself in the eyes, and I know there's other people that have done this. I would look myself in the eyes and I'd say the most horrific things over myself, things that I can't repeat here, things that I wouldn't even um, say to my worst enemies, not that I have any. I remember sitting um, in, in, the, um, in the toilet at my parents' house and turning the light off and saying out loud to myself, you don't even deserve the cost of the electricity to light this room. That's what I believed I was worth. I hated myself. I wanted to die. It was a daily struggle. I didn't want to come to church um, because I was like, they're going to reject me there as well. Life got so bad that I would lay in bed and I'd say, Jesus, I don't want to wake up in your name. Because I read in the Bible, anything you pray in his name, he'll do. And I was so scared that if I committed suicide, I'd go to hell. So he has to do it. So I say, I do not want to live in Jesus' name. And then I'd fall asleep and I'd wake up disappointed. How could he love me? God's angry at me. 
God doesn't want me. Nobody wants me. I'm alone in this world. I have no home. I have no family. I have no friends. Nobody likes me. Um, someone once said to me, um, James, what's your life first? <laughs> it's like, I don't have a life first. I must be a really bad Christian. Because <laughs> like, everyone's got a life first, right? <laughs> By the way, nobody does. Some people do. You're not a bad Christian if you don't have a life first. A um, couple of days later, having thought about this, I got in the car to go to church with my parents in Worcester. They live in Worcester. They work with drug addicts and alcoholics. They're flipping amazing. They are incredible. Dad was really hard when I first, when, when him and mum first got married. And then about 10 years into the marriage, he fell off a ladder at work, landed on his side, went into hospital, calls my mum one day, says, my spirit has been taken from me. And from that point on, he went from someone who would sit at the back of church, reading the paper, and when it was a broadsheet, right, he'd take the telegraph to church and he'd sit at the back and he'd read the paper and he'd literally like make as much noise as he could he went from being that kind of person to sitting at the back with the smelliest homeless person that had ever come into our church to the point that they had to cancel the evening service hugging him and crying with him and when my mum said later on when they got in the car and she said we're going to have to wash that everything you're wearing how could you sit that close to him he said I couldn't smell it I didn't know what you were all talking about. I couldn't smell it. Now they work with drug addicts and alcoholics in Worcester. I get in the car and um, dad turns to me, he says, look, we've been holding on to this for a while. Um, it's a Bible that you were given by Keith's mum at your christening. Do with it what you will, but we feel like it's the right time to give it to you. So I was like, okay, well, open the Bible, John 4, ribbon in. Okay, interesting. I like John 4. That's, that's an interesting story. We drive to church. The service starts. The person gets up to speak. John 4. That's interesting. I drive back to London, to my church in London, and the person's preaching. John 4. I've got a life verse. I'm a proper Christian. <laughs> so I'm going to paraphrase a bit the story of John 4. Um, it's well worth a read if you have your Bibles with you, you can follow along. I might skip through it because, um, uh, you know, we haven't got much time left. So John 4, 1 to 6, Jesus leaves this place called Judea and is heading towards a place called Cana where he earlier turned water into wine. He goes through a place called Sychar um, and starts, you know, relaxing by the well. It's noon, no one should be about, it's too hot. The woman from Samaria comes to draw water. Jesus turns to her and says, give me a drink. Jesus being a rabbi, probably dressed as a rabbi, a man, a Jew, a rabbi at noon is asking for her for a drink and that's a pretty big thing. We know it's a big thing because in verse 27, his disciples come back having left to get food and marveled at the fact that he's talking to a woman. The Samaritan woman says to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Because Jews had no dealings with people of Samaria. In fact, what Jesus should have done, he should have walked around Samaria. That's what Jews did. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? 
Jesus replies, verse 13, everyone who drinks this water from Jacob's well will be thirsty again, and whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will be never thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Give me some of this water so I don't have to come here and draw water again. Now something crazy happens. She's expecting a drink. Something happens that's totally random to us and not to Jesus. Go call your husband. (laughs) She replies, I have no husband, probably shamefully. Because the culture of the day meant if you didn't have a husband, you weren't worth that much. The only value women had was to bear children. Some couldn't do that. You can't make a child. Um, She's been divorced. You're worthless. You're You're an outcast. If you've lost your husband... Jesus replies, you're right in saying you have no husband. You've had five husbands and the man you now live with isn't your husband. She's been with six men. To society, she is the definition of an outcast. It's why she's at the well, why she's at the well at noon, alone. Jesus, even talking to this woman is massive. It's massive. This known woman. And just to be clear, let's just clear things up here. Jesus is not rebuking her. He's not shaming her. I've heard this talk about God calling out our sin. It's not her sin in this scenario. Read it again. (laughs) It's not her sin. She's not the one at fault here. Sure, she may have sinned. We've all sinned. But she's not the main actor in this story. She replies, I can see that you're a prophet. We're waiting for a Messiah to come, for the Savior. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus says, it's me. Suddenly it clicks. The disciples return and they go, oh gosh, what's happening here? She runs to the people that have rejected her, who have caused her to be an outcast. She says, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. They already know what she's done. They already know what's been done to her. Karen reading, it says that many people in that town believe because of that woman's testimony. In a culture where a woman's testimony was not worth anything, they couldn't even be court witnesses because they weren't believed. Could this be the Christ? She's an outcast, she's a known woman. A lying man had more chance of being listened to let alone believed, but something's happened. She's got living water. She's been shunned, but she gets living water. She's been used, but she gets living water. She's been abused, but she gets living water. She's an outcast, but she gets living water. What's more, her town gets living water because of her testimony. And they said to her, it's no longer because of what you said we believe, for we have heard ourselves and we know that it is indeed the saviour of the world. doesn't matter how damaged you are he can change everything how broken your life is he's got living water so why is that verse so important to me i'm the woman at the well i'm the woman at the well you're the women at the well (laughs) even you men so what did he do to me? What did he do for me? Well, when I turned 30, I knew 30 was going to be, be a big year for me. And um, God started me on a journey. It was a journey of, could I be safe? Uh, does he love me? I ended up with a father figure that I trusted, and uh, God started to heal my heart. Um, 
over the years I'd been suicidal obviously and this one time I um, went for a really tough time and I said to God you've got until Monday it's not the sort of thing you should do God you've got until Monday I mean how proud was that like God you've got until Monday but I said God you've got until Monday and if you don't turn this situation around if you don't tell me that you love me if you don't show me that you're here I'm going to take my life and I planned to jump in front of a tube train near my church I don't know why I chose near my church I don't know whether it's like a safety thing that like my vicar would come running out and like pray over my body I don't know but I was like I'm done and that's where I'm going to do it. We were going to a conference that weekend and I was driving people and I thought, you know what, if I'm going down, I'm going down swinging. <laughs> so I went and did ministry, <laughs> as you do when you're suicidal. <laughs> um, a friend of mine, he's sitting and they've said, anyone who's got a word, why don't you come forward? And he's sitting, he's having an argument with God because God said to him, someone here is suicidal. And they need to know that I'm holding them, I'm with them. And he says, how do I know that's you? God says to him, either way, nobody dies, just go and give it. So he gets up and he gives that word. And I'm sat in the front row and it hits me like a ton of bricks. Later find out, because I'd called my mum. Mum, I'm done, I can't do this anymore. On the Friday, every two hours from that point, through the night, she'd woken up, got down on her knees. If you were praying, mum, keep going. On the 2nd of June 2014, um, I had a, um, a prayer ministry session and about a week before I'd been at church and someone had come up to me and prayed for me as we did at my, my last church. And they, um, they prayed for me and they said, I've got a picture of a glass wall being smashed. I was like, okay, cool, great, thanks. Don't know what that means. Literally two minutes later, another friend comes over from the other side of the room and says, James, I saw you from the other side of the room and on the way over here, I've got a picture of a glass wall being smashed. And I hope my eyes looked at my mate were like, what the heck? He just had that same word for me. That's incredible. What does it mean? Haven't got a clue. Okay, cool. For years, people have been giving me pictures of me coming into a green pasture, you know, like the waterfall picture you get. Like, I see you under a waterfall of God's love. Like, thanks for that. Cheers. Like, yes, God loves me. Um, but you're coming into a green pasture. What does that even mean? I have no idea. Okay, cool. I go for this prayer ministry session. At the end of it, she puts her hand on my head. She says, can I pray that the depression goes? It's like, yeah, sure. She put her hand on my head and she said, depression, leave in Jesus' name. And I got instantly set free. I physically felt it lift off of me. About two weeks later, someone had a picture of me walking into a pasture. And every time I'd got that word before, I physically couldn't see my walk, myself walking into it. And when they gave me that word, I walked into it. I felt like Lazarus being called out of the grave. The rest of my life started to come together bit by bit. I would process what had happened to me. Bit by bit, I became free through therapy and prayer. God gave me pictures of him in every situation, of him in the room with a snake, keeping it back of him holding my hand while Pete poured the wheelbarrow over me. And then later on, he replaced that picture with him laying down underneath the wheelbarrow as Pete did it over his face. I had a picture of him um, sitting next to me after my best friend said, I don't want to be your friend anymore, and just holding me. 
bit by bit, he's redeemed the memories. I remember once saying to him, I just need to know you as father. I just need to know you're there. And I physically felt a hand on my head. (laughs) That was wild. I started doing some stuff um, that a friend recommended doing, which is mirror time. This is your homework. It's where you look in the mirror. I know, come to church and go homework. Um, Where you look in the mirror and you speak life over yourself. And I started getting into the habit of doing that instead of speaking death, because it wasn't me speaking it. And I started speaking life over myself. And it got to the point once where I washed my hands while after going to the toilet and I looked up in the mirror and I winked. And I went to walk out the toilet and I had to lock the door again because I just burst into tears. I was like, who have I become? <laughs> I'm not like, who have I become? Like, who have I become? <laughs> I would lay in bed instead of saying, God, kill me. I'd lay in bed and I'd have to decide if I was going to go to sleep or if I was going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. And I'd lay in bed and I'd say, come Holy Spirit. And I'd start laughing. And I'd, I'd feel wave after wave after wave after wave of his love flooding through me to the point that once I shared a room with someone and he said, James, do you mind stop, watch, stop watching that thing that you're watching because I'm trying to get to sleep? I thought I was watching a show. I thought I was watching like a funny show. Now I get to travel around and I get to pray for people who, like me, need Jesus to touch them. I've seen healings. I've seen people set free from demons. I've seen people give their lives to Jesus. After once um, praying, uh, say, telling the story at New Wine, actually, and um, this lady, um, I told the story about my friend Joel dying, and apparently, I didn't notice this when I was speaking, it's probably a good thing, um, she got up and screamed as she ran out. I'm really glad I didn't notice, you know, like, you know, midway through a preach and someone's like, ah! It's not what you need for your confidence. The next day she came to me and she said, hey, um, I just want to apologise, like, yesterday when I ran screaming out of your seminar and I was like, was it that bad? Like, sorry. And then I felt really bad because she told me the story. (laughs) She'd walked in to her friend's kitchen and found her hanging two weeks before. And she'd been 45 minutes late. Like she'd been late, so she blamed herself. She said, when you told us about your friend, I just couldn't take it. And I said, how, how's it, how are you doing? She said, well, every time I close my eyes, I see my friend hanging. Like, okay, well, she said, I can't sleep. I haven't slept since. Okay, well, why don't we pray? And she says, I don't want to close my eyes. I don't want to see it. And I was like, that's fine, keep them open. And I said, Jesus, would you take away that image? And I said, test it. And she closed her eyes. She said, it's gone. And then she said, I don't want to fall down. And I was like, it's all right, we're not going to push you because we do the new wine model. We don't do that. And she opened her hands and said, close your eyes. And she just went, <laughs> She was gone. Didn't touch her. Promise. Spoke at another conference and her boyfriend's friend um, came up to me and said, I got the call. After you prayed for her, I got the call. We've been praying so hard for her. She said, I'm free. That night she slept the best she's slept for a long time. God uses, even rejected me, broken me. Nearly done.
there's a thread that runs through the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's a thread that runs through the first books of the Gospels, Acts. It runs through all the actions of the disciples, the early followers of Jesus. It runs through the letters from the leaders of the early church to the church through their actions. A thread that we see in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible in Genesis, a thread that starts before the universe came into being, God flinging out stars into space. It's a thread that is evident as he made light and land and sea in the sky, as he made the seasons, as he transitions them from one to another, as he made birds and bears and plants and grass and all types of creatures, as he made woman and man, me and you, as he used that thread to knit us together in our mother's womb. It's a thread that runs from before time throughout history, through the Bible, through story after story that we read, through the story in John 4, and in and out of each of our stories, my story and your story. Many books have been written about it, song and music have been performed because of it. A thread that runs before time began throughout our lives right to this moment. A thread that runs the length of time itself and forward into eternity forever and ever and ever and ever. It makes wrong things right. It brings light to the dark, hope to the lost, healing to the despised, the thrown away, the hurting and the broken. That thread is love. That thread is Jesus. It's a person and he's here right now. And he wants to weave his thread of love into your story. So why don't we stand?